The future of America is in your hands. This is not a movie trailer, and it's not a political ad, but it is a call to action. I'm Mila Atmos, and I'm passionate about unlocking the power of everyday citizens. On our podcast, Future Hindsight, we take big ideas about civic life and democracy and turn them into action items for you and me. Every Thursday, we talk to bold activists and civic innovators to help you understand your power and your power to change the status quo. Find us at futurehindsight.com or wherever you listen to podcasts. Hey, y'all. I'm Erin Haynes, the host of The Amendment, a brand new weekly podcast on gender, politics, and power brought to you by the 19th News and Wonder Media Network. You've probably heard the news that this election year, our democracy is at stake. On The Amendment, I'm breaking down what that actually means, specifically for the marginalized folks who depend on our democracy the most. This is a show that dives past the headlines and gets clear on the unfinished work of our democracy. Listen to The Amendment now, wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to a bonus episode of What Could Go Right. I'm Emma Varvalukas, Executive Director of the Progress Network. This episode was recorded as a live event that the Progress Network hosted prior to the 2020 presidential election. But when we looked back, a lot of it still applied to what's going on now. So we hope that you find it educational. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Progress Network's second event, Bridging Our Divides, with David Brooks and Theodore R. Johnson, two of our wonderful members. First, we have David Brooks. You uh, likely have read his work in the New York Times. Uh, he does twice-weekly op-eds, and he's been writing for them since, I believe, 2003. Is that right, David? Excellent. Um, he has written a slew of books, uh, most recently, The Second Mountain, The Quest for a Moral Life, and uh, very pertinent to this conversation. Um, he's also the executive director of Weave, the Social Fabric Project at the Aspen Institute, uh, which is aiming to repair America's social fabric. Uh, and our second panelist is Theodore R. Johnson. I think we're going to go by Ted. Is that all right with you, Ted? Excellent. So Ted is a senior fellow at the Brennan Center for Justice at New York University's School of Law. Um, his work explores how race plays a role in electoral politics, uh, including things like issue framing and uh, disparities in policy outcomes. And Ted has a book coming out, I believe, in June. It's called When the Stars Begin to Fall, and that's about building a uh, truly inclusive national solidarity, which is definitely something that Ted's going to be talking about tonight and probably other themes from the book as well. Um, and he has also written extensively publications, so you can check out his work online. And with that, I'm going to turn it over to Zachary, the founder of the Progress Network. Thank you, Emma. And thanks, David and Ted, for joining uh, tonight probably one of the last events any of us will do for the year. So hopefully we can uh, usher in the end of an Anna Cerebris with a certain amount of hope about the future. We clearly have enough despair, dystopian despair. And the whole point of the Progress Network, of which both of you are thankfully members, is that no matter how uh, grim things are in either the way we tell it or the way it actually is, the, the future part of it's unwritten. And it's up to each of us to write that. So the future is not, unlike Lawrence Arabia, the future is not written. It is up to each of us to determine it. And it can have a variety of outcomes, right? It can be as bad as we fear. It could be as open and embracing as we hope. And in moments where cultures, and I think right now, American culture and Western culture, maybe to some degree, global culture is admittedly in a dark place, pandemic-induced, partisan politics-induced, uh, you know, you name it, then the imperative for trying to see a pathway that is more constructive, I think, is vital. I mean, my take has always been, if we're all going to hell in a handbasket, it won't be for lack of a lot of voices saying that we are. So it's not going to take us by surprise. Um, you know, I personally, and the, the point of the Progress Network is I, I don't really have anything to add to that narrative. Uh, if it's right, it's right. And again, it's it's well covered. But if there's another narrative, we should probably be thinking about that somewhat constructively. So, you know, on that note and on this day, we're, we're recording this for those who are listening at another time uh, on the eve of the winter solstice. Solstices are typically times when people 
think about change and inflection points. Um, you know, in, in the light of what I've just said, the winter solstice is the end of the darkest moment, literally, right? It is the end of the shortest and therefore darkest day of the year, at least in the Northern Hemisphere it is. And it is the beginning of a winter season, but it's also the beginning of that beginning to change. So maybe there's some poetic justice in doing it on this evening. It's also, you know, in the, at the heart of the late 1960s and early 70s when American society, but also European, was roiling, right? An intense conflict with itself and people with each other to the point where people were really thinking whatever experiments, whether it was France, Mexico, the United States, that, that we were on the edge of an unraveling that was going to lead to revolution and change and, and, and more heartbreak. There was also, you know, the, the the feeling that it was the dawning of the age of Aquarius, right? That this was going to be a new period of, of hope and love and peace. I'm not just talking about the silly musical hair, but we're also on the night of a winter solstice when Jupiter and Saturn have come closest together as they will for 800 years. I don't know what that means, by the way. This I'm just I'm just throwing it out there as a as another kismet possibility for this conversation. So with that, to go from the celestial to the uh, the terrestrial and earthbound. We're going to structure this conversation as like a big picture, like what's going on politically and culturally right now, and then have it bear down a little more in terms of there are things we might be able to do collectively, but also what might we be able to do individually to make sure that the sum of all our fears doesn't come to pass. Um, so on that, obviously a very divisive election. For some people, it's it's not quite over. Um, Maybe you could both reflect for a moment, and I'm struck by this and looking at you know, sort of message boards and discussion on both the left and the right, that each side, if there are two sides, but at least each major side has a perspective that the other in the United States is intensely anti-democratic, you know, that the Democrats essentially tried to steal the 2016 election away from Trump or, you know, that or from the Democrat perspective that that Russia and Trump somehow colluded to steal the election away from Hillary. And then the replay of that in 2020 on the right, that the Democrats have now stolen the election away from Trump and that both sides were interested in undermining the legitimate results of an election. How, how do we, I mean, how do you reconcile those, that mirror, right? Each of which is firmly convinced in its own way that those things are true. You want to start Ted and then David? Sure, sure. Um, so first, thanks for, for having me, David. It's a pleasure to be with you. Uh, this this is a moment, um, it is a moment of reflection. Uh, and I think the solstice is perfect that, that we're, we're here around this day to talk about this issue. Um, so a, a few things stand out to me. Um, the first is that we, it, there is a paradox happening in the country right now that is marrying our best angels with our worst ones, our, our, our lighter uh, better angels with our, our darker ones. Um, and th this is happening at a time, you know, we opened the year with the president being impeached, um, with Ahmaud Arbery being gunned down in Georgia um, on Memorial Day. George Floyd is killed. There's a global health pandemic happening, and coronavirus is killing hundreds of thousands of Americans and hundreds of thousands more worldwide. And we have two parties that are at each other's throats and that are um, willing to use the passions of the public and the instruments of government to have their way um, in, in order to fashion our systems and our institutions in a way that gives them more power and influence and sway over the future of the country. All of this is happening. And at the same time, in, in the midst of all this, we saw a, a summer of protest where Americans across lines of race, class, religion, region, ethnicity come together and essentially say to the state, the nation state, you have exceeded your authority and we are unhappy with how unresponsive you have been to us. This is under the, the veil or behind the veil of, of Black Lives Matter movement, a racial justice movement. But I think um, at its core, it is a public expressing its dissatisfaction with the conduct of the state. And so while we have politicians playing out these, uh, playing out uh, our worst impulses and using these things for partisan gain, we have a public that is both coming together in ways 
and dividing, uh, sort of following the cues of national and state leadership in, in other ways. And these two things are at odds with one another. They, they are intention. And frankly, the two things cannot touch this, this coming together, solidarity, multiracial, multi-ethnicity uh, cannot come together um, at the same time as we see this division without one of the two things bruising or both of them. And something's going to have to give. Uh, in moments like this, usually transformative leaders are the ones that pull us from the moment and remind us of what our professed principles are as a nation. Uh, we are still waiting for that leadership, I think. And we're certainly waiting for the public to, to, um, to sort of get on board with the with not viewing one another as enemies of the state and viewing each other as, as sort of citizens in solidarity with one another. Um, our politics are making it worse. Uh, I think we're seeing the, the worst of it play out on social media and other places. Um, but I don't want to lose the optimistic things, uh, the moments, the connections that have happened in the midst of all the, uh, the divisiveness and the sort of enemy making out of one another. Okay. Yeah, and I guess for me, I've been helped this whole year by a, a book that Samuel Huntington, the late Harvard political scientist, wrote in 1981 called The Politics of Disharmony. And he said that every 60 years or so, America goes through what he called a, a, cre a moment of moral convulsion. And he said it happened in the 1770s, happened in the 1830s with Andrew Jackson, the 1890s, the progressive era, the 1960s. And these are moments when people become indignant against power. They lose faith in society. An angry generation comes on the scene, intolerant of injustice. New communications technologies come on the scene. Everybody's angry. And they're angry at a sense of that the system just isn't working anymore. Uh, and the good part about that, and, and in 1981, he wrote, if the weird 60-year pattern continues, right around 2020, we'll have another of these moments of moral convulsion. And so he was right. And to me, the moral convulsion didn't start in 2020. It started around 2014. You had the rise of populist movements all around the world, the indignados in Spain saying to their leaders, you do not represent us. You had the killings of Eric Garner. Uh, and you began to have the real emergence of Black Lives Matter. You had the Trump people movement beginning to get started. And so what happened this year was the earthquake was happening. And then we had a hurricane in the middle of the earthquake, which was COVID and the recession and Floyd. And that revealed all the fissures that were already exposed. And so the good news about that 60% or 60-year cycle, and I really do not believe in cycles in general, but is, is that we've been here before. We've had a moment where everything seemed convulsed. And at those moments when the old paradigms are breaking down, it seems ugly. 1968, you could tell a much more dark story in 1968 than you could today, in my view. Uh, and yet people figure out stuff out and you have to have some faith in human ingenuity. The problem with our moment right now is the distrust in our systems is even higher than before. If you ask people, do you trust government to do the right thing most of the time? It's like 19%. Distrust in each other is higher than before. If you ask people, do you trust the people around you? A generation ago, 60%. Now it's about 33%. And the younger you go, the more distrust there is. And so one of the problems we face is that, you know, Ted talked about leadership. I, I'm waiting for leadership, and I happen to have a lot of faith in Joe Biden. But I don't think people trust leadership anymore. Mm -hmm. I think they really only trust the people right around them. And so that more than in other times when nations turn themselves around, it's going to be more bottom up than top down. Yep. You know, Tony, I'm glad you mentioned uh, Huntington. Um, so Sam Huntington was, a, as you said, a Harvard professor, wrote a lot about clash of civilizations in the 90s after having written about these cycles before then. And I was a fellow at, uh, at the Olin Institute, which is his National Security Institute at Harvard in, in the 1990s. Um, while I was also writing for The Nation. I, I think I might have been the only person who was funded by the very conservative Olin Foundation and wrote for The Nation simultaneously. Uh, and, and Huntington knew this and thought I was just chronically wrong about everything. And I was you know, much more in kind of my left, very self-righteous you know, times phase and you know, longer hair. I know that's hard to believe, but it was, it was a lot longer then. Um, and, but Huntington always felt like, look, I think you're wrong uh, and misguided and naive and all these things. But I, but I want the argument and the debate because I think there's some value to be had by listening to these perspectives, even if I think they're wrong. And it, it feels to me that in the, the 20 years you know, since then, and there was low trust in government then too, David. I mean, there was a, you know, the Pew studies in the late 90s and um, you know, big studies, why don't Americans trust government? Military was the only thing people had faith in. 
but I feel like today there's more of a tendency to to dismiss as kind of liberal and bourgeois the very value system of I, I want to be juxtaposed and face to face with ideas that I find disagreeable or that I just think are wrong. I mean, are, are is that a you know quaint elite? liberal mindset Ted that you know is was was very nice when it was a bunch of you know white guys who essentially were in the same you know ecosystem um because you know that is a way that a lot of that's dismissed now you know the idea that I should be confronting I think you're wrong but I want to listen to you right yeah so Huntington um after he had that seminal essay um that led to the class of civilizations theory or a framework, he wrote a book, a longer treatise on that, um, and he titled the thing, Who Are We? And I think this is the question that David talked about, that the nation begins to ask itself every 60, 70 years, and, and perhaps we're, we're in that cycle again, and it usually arises when the democracy expands, or the, the, the notion or, or the idea of who can be included as fully and truly American, when that expands a little bit, it's, there are convulsions in the system. Uh, and so I do think when a bunch of, you know, elite white men are sitting around asking, who are we? It is a different discussion than when you've got a black president, a Tea Party movement, uh, two parties that are further apart, polarized, and they are all holding the reins of power, asking each other, who are we as Americans? They're using the same words. They all say we believe in equality and liberty and freedom and prosperity, but the path to getting there is different. And the who benefits from the uh, the, the uh, largesse of the government also differs in, in their different constructions. And so we're reduced back to this question of who are we that, that Huntington posed uh, a couple of decades ago. So I, I do think that we are still wrestling with this question. I think the answer to that question, if we are successful, is what the American experiment is all about. Uh, if we can figure out how to create a truly liberal, egalitarian, multiracial, multi-ethnic democracy in a nation of over 300 million people, we will have achieved something that no other nation can, can say it's done. Uh, but if we fail, we will just be another um, story that nations tell one another in centuries uh, ahead about failed experiments and the, uh, you know, sort of the, the ego of people who thought they could do what human nature was never intended to. Uh, I buy the former argument, not the latter, but it is a long, hard road to get there. Uh, but that question should be at the center of everything we do and po politically and socially. Mm. And I, Dan, and I, you, you, you spent years, you know, kind of arguing with Mark Shields, right? Like that was a, that was a thing. Cause there was a, I guess a sense that it wasn't just good TV, but it was also good, I guess, good for us. Right. But is that a quaint notion? Uh, no, I, I think everybody I know likes to argue. Uh, it's just Jews and Catholics are do it a lot more. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> you know, that, that who are we book that Huntington wrote later on was both extremely prescient and extremely wrong. Right. <laughs> it was prescient in helping us anticipate Trump because it was really not, not friendly to mass immigration, but it was an extremely wrong in arguing that the America is at its core, if I remember correctly, an Anglo-Protestant nation, which is just not who we are anymore. Right. And so, as Ted suggested, a friend of mine, Eric Lewis, says, we're trying to do something really hard, create the first mass multicultural democracy with no majority group. Like, that's just hard. And we should cut our black. Um, and I do think one of the things that I think we struggle with is finding a common narrative within which all voices can be heard. And so I was basically raised as an immigrant kid um, and I was told a narrative. And the narrative was that America is the exodus story. We escaped oppression, crossed the wilderness and came to the promised land. And the Puritans had a version of that narrative. A bunch of the founders had a version of that narrative. The, the Benjamin Franklin wanted to put Moses on the great seal of the United States. Um, the, every immigrant group had a version. Martin Luther King talked more about uh, uh, the Old Testament than the New Testament. Uh, and there, it was exodus all, all throughout the civil rights movement. I tell young people that narrative and they look at me like I'm crazy. <laughs> they say, that's the narrative powerful white men tell. <laughs> like we're the promised land. We're not the promised land. And so I tried to beat the exodus narrative into them <laughs> for a few years. And I finally got to respect them and say, okay, we're gonna find a new narrative. And I think we're struggling to find that unifying narrative. I happen to think 
Lincoln's second inaugural is a, is a good narrative. It's, we had an experiment, a beautiful experiment. We've screwed it up in many, many ways, but there's power and redemption. Uh, but somehow we, we have not, if, if you don't know what story you're a part of, you don't know what to do. And I think we're, we're struggling to find that thing that will unite across difference. I was going to say, I, Amber, Amber, I, I Amber, think Amber, the narrative is right. Wait, 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 just Amory Slaughter in the chat just pointed out what you just said, David, about, you know, Huntington. I mean, he did say like Latin act, Latin Americans aren't assimilatable into the American experiment. Right. So just to echo that point. Sorry, Ted. No, no. Yeah. And, and so I, this goes right to the point that, that David was making that um, I, I think the core American story is good and right. And I think, as David said, you can find that story in almost every group's journey to America, in America, and and sort of uh, being American. The the problem is the larger story that we tell ourselves is often too exclusive of the American story of other groups, groups that are were, were late additions or late lately accepted into the American story. So the core, I think, is good. The the sort of the the um, the fable of it is is all good. The lessons to be learned, um, but the inclusion of it is the part that still is uh, that we're, we're grappling with and that it is a story with a beginning, a middle and an end and not just a story that is complete, that we have now, we are exceptional, the exceptional nation and now let's revel in our exceptionalism, but it is a story of error. It is a story of progress. It is a story of redemption that is inclusive and only when it has that richer context does the true core American story take on its fullest beauty. You know, it's, it's funny, Ted, on that, not funny, haha, funny, you know, ironic. Um, when, when Trump was elected and there was a degree on kind of liberal coastal world that was shocked, right? Shocked at gambling in Casablanca, shocked that that element of American culture which has been nicely papered over in our story, right, David? You know, it's, it's part of the story we don't like to tell, um, was suddenly there. And a lot of African-Americans, a lot of racial minorities said, look, you know, hello, like this has been there all along. You, you, you guys have just been in denial about it. But then the flip side is come the election of 2020 and more African-Americans vote for Trump than voted for Hillary Clinton by four to five percent. You know, when you look at the, the national averages, more Hispanics, four to five percent. And even in those coastal cities like New York and Los Angeles, the percentage of people who voted for Trump was above uh, 2016. And in New York, it was almost 5%, 6% more in LA. It was like one and other cities similar. So how do we account for that? You know, like on the one hand, there's the, hey, wait a minute, this this kind of glaring example of, of the story we haven't told on the part of a lot of people saying, hey, we've been saying this for years, you haven't been listening. But then come 2020, it's not like that support went down amongst those very people. It went up. You want me to jump in on this one? I, either. It's <laughs> such an easy question. So. Yeah, yeah. So I, I will say, look, I, here's the anomaly isn't, at least for black voters, isn't Trump in 2020 or even Trump in 2016. The anomaly for black voters was really um, Obama in 2008 and probably 2012. Uh, if we look, we go all the way back to 64 and Goldwater versus uh, Johnson in the presidential election, since then, from 68 forward, uh, about 11 or 12% African Americans have voted for whoever the Republican candidate for president was. And only in 90, uh, or, and only in 2008 and 2012 did that number reduce because of, of Barack Obama's candidacy. Uh, and so the, all we've seen over the last two presidential elections in terms of African-American voters are black Republicans returning home after we've seen after two um, presidential elections with the black president. So Trump's ability to get, uh, you know, 12, 13, 14 percent, depending on which exit polls you look at, of African-Americans doesn't suggest that there is a, a segment of black voters who have bought into the Trumpism, the Trump version of the Republican Party or the principles that he espouses, but rather that we are more partisan than we have been in some time. And that includes that partisanship 
cuts across racial lines to some extent. Black voters are still the most monolithic block out there. But again, that one in seven, one in eight uh, black folks vote, voted for a Trump version of the Republican Party is unremarkable in the sweep of history. Uh, and so I don't think we're, the, the danger here isn't that the Trump appeal is now uh, spreading and we've got this to contend with. It is that um, partisanship and, and political and partisan polarization is now becoming a, uh, a, a pandemic in and of itself in American culture and attaching itself to our personal and social identities in a way that is really, really bad for liberal democracy. And I, and I would say that I agree with Ted. There's, it's very easy to tell a story of incredible stability in the American political alignments, that you know, all this stuff happens this year and Latino vote, Black vote, <laughs> the gender gap, it's like, whoa, it's all kind of the same. The, the thing I do think is different is the class structure of our politics has changed. We have in our head from decades ago an idea that the Republicans are their party of the rich. Democrats have some rich educated folks because in Madison, Wisconsin, they have a lot of poor folks. Republicans have the outer suburbs. And that's still somewhat true, but becoming less true. So I think four generations ago, Republicans won 87 of the richest counties in America. This time, Biden won 87 of the richest counties in America. Two things are happening. One, the what I call bobos, or Richard Florida calls the creative class, are just growing in wealth and power. And they're concentrating in metro areas. And so you're seeing this really powerful creative class elite. Then you have the Trumpian reaction against that elite, which pushes the corporate class blue, because <laughs> they don't want either basic CEO in Greenwich, Connecticut doesn't want to be associated with Donald Trump. So Greenwich goes heavily Democratic this year. Uh, and so that shifts over. And as that happens, as the elite moves a little blue, economic elite, the working class moves a little red. And you get a cultural reaction, I think not so much in African-Americans, but I'm really struck by Latino vote in the Rio Grande Valley. There, there's, there seems to be real movement among working class Latinos. And David Shore, young but very intelligent political, progressive political analyst said, Democrats have spent all this time dreaming of a multiracial working class coalition and now it exists, and it looks like it's on the Republican side. <laughs> and so <laughs> the, the class war happened, and it didn't end up looking like we thought it would look. Uh, and I, so I do think both those things are true. I mean, I wonder, you know, you mentioned 68 before, David, and there was, a, you know, an active debate over the summer of was this 68 redux? Was it better? Was it worse? And lots of people, including me, had their opinions about it. Uh, clearly, one <laughs> huge distinguishing factor is we in 2020 know how 1968 turned out. So it's easier to look back at that and go, you know, it, 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 it came out in the, in the wash. Um, whereas we have no idea how 2020 is going to turn out in, in the future. And that's the problem of, you know, we live, we live in the present with no awareness of the future, but some awareness of the past. Um, but I do wonder, you know, whether for both of you, and, and this is kind of the negative question to, to Ted's point of, you know, the better angels versus not. I mean, did we just get lucky in 1968, in, in 1861? Uh, not that the Civil War was lucky, but, you know, it, it, it ended with a certain amount of resolution. Although I guess today there's some question of how resolved that actually was. Um, you know, maybe to Ted's point, you know, nations have their their, their seasons, right? And maybe this, this, maybe this isn't our season anymore. Yeah, well, I, I certainly, um, uh, I went through a period this year, like I'm not a declinist, I've argued against declinists my whole life. But when you look at trust, it's very hard to build it back up. And I, I called all these social scientists, how do you rebuild trust in a society that loses it? And the social scientists were not really much help because <laughs> they said, well, we haven't really seen it in our lifetimes. <laughs> Historians were a little better. The Historians could point to England between about 1830 and 1848 when you had the uh, sort of religious revival, Clapham set fighting abolition, for abolition. Uh, then you had the Chartists, a union movement, a working class bottom-up movement. You had the reform bills, a political reform movement from the top down. And that really did turn around that society. And, and similarly, in 1890, and, and Robert Putnam has a book about this right now called The Upswing, we had a cultural shift in the 1890s, the social gospel movement, communitarian. We had a civic renaissance, uh, 
Boys and Girls, Girls Clubs, Boys and Girls Scouts, the NAACP, Environmental Movement, Temperance Movement, and then we had the Progressive Movement. And so you had culture, bottom-up civic, and then top-down political in that order. And so I, I do think it's possible that people just figure it out. I have an innate faith in a, a changing culture. A, a culture is a collective response to the problems of the moment. And while 68 did produce shifts, it really did produce amazing cultural shifts. I mean, think of the civil rights, think of feminism. I think of all these things that came out that time. And so I think we underestimate to the extent to which culture is going to look very different in five years. Go to the Yale yearbook of 1968 and look at the photos of the men. Half of them have crew cuts, half of them have long hair. By 75, they all have long hair. (laughs) You have big cultural shifts when you live through these moments. Yeah, and I I think the important thing is that these big shifts don't happen on their own. They're kind of manufactured. Um, And by this, I don't mean that there's sort of a puppet master making things happen and and sort of changing society, but it seems like you have to have conditions plus a national interest, plus a certain kind of leadership in order to transform a society over say, in a short, relatively short period, like a decade. Um, Usually, especially when you talk to political scientists, we tend to say with the nation needs a moment, a, a war, like we need to find a common enemy in order to break down the, the barriers between us. And I don't like that argument. And I, I frankly, I think, you know, if COVID wasn't enough to marshal the nation to sort of come together, uh, I don't know that going to war with another nation is going to satisfy that. In fact, after 9-11, if you were a Sikh in America, you probably didn't think that there was much national pride and unity um, in, in the days after. So but I do think that there are there are things happening in the ether, in our economy, in our social structures around the world, um, combined with um, the nation realizing that if it wants to sustain itself, it needs to change. The civil rights movement happened right alongside the Cold War from 48 when Truman desegregates the military and the federal workforce all the way through to 1968 um, when the Fair Housing Act is signed. That 20-year sweep of strong civil rights statute, judicial holdings, and executive decisions didn't happen because of epiphanies happening across white America. It happened because the nation realized that as we told the world that democracy is the way of the future, that freedom and uh, and liberty is what people deserve and a government that's responsive to those folks. And then the Russians or the Soviets could say, and you lynch Negroes. Um, just as, just as, that's how much proof there is that your democracy is working so well. That narrative doesn't work, and and that presents a threat to the American identity and our national interests. And so, when you have um, those conditions plus the national interest, and then you got strong leadership, uh, Truman, Eisenhower, Lyndon Johnson, these were were not men of leisure. These were men who made hard decisions. Were not perfect by any means, but made hard decisions um, in favor of a more united country, or at least in favor of a country that took another step closer to its professed principles. Those three things are the, are the things that, in my view, manufacture the change that makes us a more perfect union. And, uh, and I think we are in such a moment now, the conditions are there, um, but we have to find the, the leader that will show it, that the public, convince the public that it's in our interest to behave in a way that's more compatible with our principles. Hey, everybody. I'm Scott Schaefer. And I'm Marisa Lagos. We're the hosts of Political Breakdown, a show that pulls back the curtain on the people and forces driving politics in the Golden State from KQED in San Francisco. And now, ahead of the 2024 election, we are bringing you even more. More conversations with the top movers and shakers at the state capitol and in national politics. But the dyslexia was the greatest gift that ever happened to me. Nothing was rote, nothing was linear. I had to work around things, work differently, see the world differently. And I say that to young people and say, know how important your participation is. And I think it's a time for this generation to put forward new voices. More reporting with analysis. It's been a very good session for organized labor. but Hot labor summer. Hot labor summer. It's turning out to be a nice fall as well. More politics with personality. I've sweat election day my entire life. (laughs) (laughs) We we hear that. Political breakdown daily. Every weekday, we'll break down what's happening and why it matters. With news that informs, surprises, and maybe even inspires you. Political Breakdown goes daily starting January 8th.
it's Emma. They say you should learn something new every day. It's good advice, but with so much to do in your daily life, how are you going to make the time to learn and stay curious about our world? Well, with Everything Everywhere Daily, you can easily make that goal an actual reality. Everything Everywhere Daily is one of the world's most popular daily education podcasts and a top three history podcast. In about 10 minutes, you can learn something new every day. The show covers history, science, geography, mathematics, and technology, as well as biographies from some of the world's most interesting people. Fans of the show are so passionate that you even work to join the Completionist Club, the group of dedicated listeners who have listened to every single one of the show's more than a thousand and counting episodes. All of the episodes are informative, interesting, and best of all, always under 15 minutes. So go ahead, learn something new every single day with Everything Everywhere Daily. Find it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You know, I wonder for for both of you that there is like two uh, simultaneous arguments going on. Uh, One is there's a lot more that unites people in the United States uh, than separates them, but that in a sort of a media context, all that we pay attention are the things that separate. So that, you know, the the othering is prevalent in our public discourse, whether whether it's the othering of, you know, the blue states or people in my community where, you know, you talk about rednecks or you talk about, you know, the, the South, you talk about the West and guns, and it's all with a kind of disdain that if it were racial would actually be, would sound kind of racist, right? And if it's in in red country about the cities, you know, crime ridden and socialist and anarchist. And, you know, every time there's a, a shot of the one square block of Seattle that was burning in the summer, it's, you know, Seattle is burning or Portland is burning or wh- whatever it is. So there's a lot of othering in our public. There's not a lot of ussing. Uh, but then it does leave you with the question of is, is the, the notion that what unites us is greater than what divides us kind of a quaint you know, a pablum we tell ourselves, whereas the othering that's reflected in in media land very prominently is is more true. You know, which is it? I mean, David, you're, you know, you're an increasingly unusual voice in in media land in that you're you're hard to put into a box, except on Zoom, where it's very very easy to put you into a box. Um, you know, the, most people want boxes. You know, the producers want boxes, editors want boxes. They don't want they don't want people around in boxes. And, you know, Ted, you and, and the whole point of the progress network is to talk about it, but I'm also pushing my own conceits here, right? Maybe it's, maybe what's being reflected is in fact, what's real, that the othering is in fact more predominant than the ussing. Yeah, I would say it depends on what system of reality. I mean, I can put myself in a box. I'm a Hamiltonian Burkean. So I'm in a wig. My party died in like, <laughs> like, uh, I Henry Clay. Um, but I, you know, I have a colleague who used to work at Weave and now works at Braver Angels named April Lawson. And she, uh, she organizes groups of reds and blues. And what they do is they go into a town and they go on social media and they find the absolute craziest people they can find <laughs> like 15 on each side. And then they spend a, a weekend together conversing. And then about middle of the day, Sunday, they say, you know, well, of course we get together, but we're the moderates. You should have picked the crazies. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you are crazies. <laughs> so, so much of what's going on is performative. You try believe what the tribe wants you to believe. So much of it is dependent on distance. And so much is manufactured by people in my industry. <laughs> uh, and... But so that's why I come back to local and I think we're going to have to start local because if you, you know, with Weave, which before COVID, I would travel around the country three, three states a week. And there was never a town I went to into that it was as dysfunctional as Washington. Every town and Jim and Deb Fallows, our friends write about this as well. Every town is working reasonably well because people, you know, contact theory, the idea that when you actually talk to somebody, you actually get to like them. It's hard to hate at close range. Uh, that really is true. And so I do think that's why I continually go back to the hyper, hyper local, because mm-hmm. when you meet people, it's really they don't fit your boxes. I, I, just to close, I was at a Trump rally. This is back in the beginning of Trumpism. I run into a lesbian biker who collected guns 
and converted to Sufi Islam after surviving a plane crash. Like, what, what box does she fit into? <laughs> and she's supporting Trump. And, and that's every individual human being you meet doesn't fit into a box when you actually get to know them. Yeah, that, that's that's absolutely right. I've got a, a, a friend I went to high school with, uh, a black woman raised evangelical Christian who converted to Islam in college, who is now an FBI special agent working on um, finding nuclear weapons, the traces, like the chemicals around nuclear and biological weapons, and uh, when they turn, when they find sites around the world. So she is like both uh, unbelievably un-American in her proto- in her sort of the idea of her, and there is no better perfect picture of what an American is and could be, um, and and sort of all the identities wrapped up in, in who she is, and and so this sort of gets to the question about the using. The, the using we're trying to do in America is unnatural. Most nations bind over a religion or an ethnicity. They're very homogenous. And all the social science suggests the more diverse a group of people are in, in terms of a nation state or in a society, the more difficult it is to create effective bonds between those folks. Because just the ontological marker of race, of gender, uh, even of religion based on, on attire, et cetera, serves as dividing walls between folks. And the only way you can break those down is through closer contact um, and then through strong, again, strong leadership. Uh, and so the using we're trying to build in America is built on an idea. You know, if you subscribe to the things in our sacred texts and in, in the Declaration, Constitution, the Bill of Rights, that's supposed to be sufficient enough for you to be considered fully and truly American. And since the nation's inception, and even in the, the decades beforehand, it's never been sufficient to have the belief. And yet we continue to say we are a nation founded on an idea and we sort of guard who has access to the idea, who gets the benefit from the, again, the largesse of the nation built on this idea. But if we cannot find a way to create the us out of an idea, which is, again, something that hasn't happened before for a nation of our size and power, uh, then then the American experiment is uh, it's in danger. Uh, I, I believe that it's possible, but it's going to require a lot of sacrifice and forbearance to make it make it real. You know, just I want to, and I'm really glad you said that. And to kind of follow on that, um, it, it struck me for years that part of that story, David, that that we tell, uh, also glosses over a lot of how difficult it was to get to each successive, somewhat larger us. You know, that it wasn't a kumbaya. It wasn't like everybody read Burke and went, "Oh, you know, we should all sit down and engage each other, even though we hate each other or have differences." It there was a lot of conflict to get to, if not concord, then kind of a live and let live. And I guess I, I wonder, you know, Ted, on this, um, how do you talk to maximalists about minimal steps? You know, how do you, how do you convince people who have, and this is absolutely true for African-Americans demanding justice and demanding it now, you know, it's true for red America saying, uh, you know, <laughs> the election was stolen. It's true for blue America saying, you know, we need to have uh, a pr- progressive, you know, Green New Deal, even if part of the country doesn't want it. How do you, how do you, how do we do that? Like, how do you do minimal steps in a maximalist culture? Yeah. So I think the first thing is you have to, the, the minimalists and the maximalists and, and all the people around them have to recognize it isn't necessary for them to agree to sing Kumbaya in order for the nation to move forward. Like they they don't have to to get on the same page before we can move. Uh, So uh, this is how I like to think of it. Um, The maximalists, I I call them truth tellers. And the minimalists, I call them bridge builders. And it's not a one-to-one match, but the the role they play in society, I think is is about right. The truth tellers, the maximalists are pointing in a direction based uh, for the nation, based on a a set of principles that they believe. And usually what we're arguing about um, on whatever side of the, the, the vision you're on is usually about how to get to this more perfect union and not that we want a more perfect union. We certainly have folks on the fringe um, who are who 
would rather, you know, kick all people of color out or reinstall, you know, rigid patriarchy and, and keep women at home. Those are the folks that are so few and far between, even if they get up, they have a big megaphone on social media that they're not, they're not the true maximalists. They're, they're actually detracting from the vision. But those folks who may say Medicare for all or those on the other side that say stronger Second Amendment protections, all, all of them are basically saying we believe in a more perfect union. And we, these are the things we need to get there. In, in their construct. The bridge builders are the folks who look at the, the the sort of North Star that these truth tellers put in the sky and begin walking in that direction. And the tension again is, is about do we take a step, you know, in you know southwest or, or northeast, but moving in the in, in a direction to make the nation more perfect is uh is I think on the minds of both sides. And so to bring them together, you have to I think the key is to recognize we both want the same thing. We disagree on how to get there, um, but we both want the same thing. We are not there yet. We, we, we actually believe, and by we, I mean the American public, believes that the other side is actively trying to destroy what we're trying to build. And when we don't have a common vision, we, when we can't even see the better angels of the other side uh, and recognize them as fellow citizens that, that want the same thing out of this nation, then it doesn't matter uh, about you know who the maximists are, who the minimalists are, what direction they're going, because we, no matter what step they take, even if it's in the direction to our benefit, we will view that step as treasonous and, and as a threat to the nation. So we've got to reconcile that we all actually want the same thing out of this nation and and, uh, and and until we get to that very foundational consensus agreement, the the other stuff is uh, is just fodder for for battle. Let me spread a little optimism on you, Zachary. Uh, so, I, about two weeks ago, I called around to a bunch of senators, Republicans, and asked if they thought there was stuff they could get done with Joe Biden. And everybody I spoke to um, came up with the list of things they want to do, prescription drugs, immigration, at least DACA, uh, obviously uh, 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 infrastructure plans. And they came up with a list pretty easily of 16 bills that they thought at least, you know, eight, 10 Republicans could could get on. I think that, and I think the Republican Party has become, the parties are further apart on culture than ever before, but not as far apart, I think, on, on economics as before. Uh, I think the Republican Party, I think I saw Avik Roy's on this call. Um, he would know better than this than I. But a lot of Republicans uh, want to become that working class party. And they're quite willing to use government and even industrial policy to do it. Uh, and so I think there's some options there. And then I was on a call last week with the Problem Solvers Caucus. And that's, a, I think, I I'm I'm shouldn't guess, a several dozen House members, evenly Democrat and Republican, and eight to ten senators, evenly Democrat, Republican. And the first thing I was struck by on the call was the intense bonds of camaraderie across party between these people, that they had really formed intense bonds and really a decision to make, get stuff done. And lo and behold, they are the ones who created this $900 billion compromise, or at least the framework for it. And you may not be happy with it. I'm not particularly happy with it. But at least it's something that passed. And, and so I do think there, there's a group of people in the Congress who realize that leadership has just gotten too powerful. And Mitch McConnell has not allowed votes on bill after bill after bill, whether a Republican senator or a Democratic senator. And people came here to try to do stuff, most of them. And so that I came away from these two interviews and sets of conversations a little more hopeful that it'll be incremental, obviously, but it'll be something and I do think Biden is going to get some pieces of legislation passed in, in the new Congress. You know, I wonder on that, like, is there, and David, you've written a lot about this, about how to, from a moral framework, but also how to, how to have conversations, right? How to listen, how to, how to speak. Um, and I wonder if some of it is, you know, one a watchword, which I, I, I find myself coming back to a lot these days is a certain amount of humility and humbleness of, you know, none of us have the sole access to the truth, capital T, capital T, that in order to work with others who, whose views you might find objectionable, it, it requires a degree, I suppose that's in the trust category, of believing that they may indeed want the best for their country, the best for their family, the best for their community, and come up with radically different responses to that, um, but are not so othered as to be, you know, evil and dismissible. Uh, it, it would seem that 
having some of that is a necessary prerequisite, or at least trying to inculcate that individually. I don't know whether that, you know, the, the question with the problem solvers caucus is why are they not out? You know, I wondered about this with some of the moderates within the Democratic Party. Why aren't they pounding their own pavement? Are they pounding it and the media is not listening? Are they not pounding it because they're scared they're not going to be heard? Well, I think it's hard. A, they are trying and it's hard for them to get media attention. Mm -hmm. But it's also true. It's hard to go up against your own leadership. Uh, you're lap to lose committee assignment. It's hard to go up against the, the people in the media who are who will pound you for being in the middle. I can tell you, I'm because I'm this famous Perky and Hamiltonian, I'm sort of in the middle now. And it was easier being on one side. I used to be on a team. It was easier. <laughs> uh, and uh, so for then, I don't even have to get reelected. They have to get reelected. And they have to re get reelected without being primaried. But Joe Biden is a problem solver. I mean, he, he, is, he grew up in an era when things were. Ted mentioned all these things that passed in that 20-year window, the Fair Housing Act, the Voting Rights Act, the Civil Rights Act. That was Biden's formative era. And so he looks at this country, and that's what he sees. <laughs> an era where things worked and where there were actually in Congress. So in my view, and, and to go back to the maximalist minimalist, um, I was coming in a conversation during the middle of the, the real high points of the Floyd uh, protests. And I was saying, I remember a friend of mine said to me, you know, people like us, we don't really like a lot of the real anger that's out there, but we would not all be talking about that without the maximalist. But now it's time for us to come in after with the inevitable, boring, incremental thing. So I totally with Ted on the, on the incremental roles. The one point I, I would point people to a piece that was in the New Yorker at about that time by Hilton Alls, ALS. And it was my mother's dream for her boys and every black boy in America. And he writes about his past and his mother's generation, which really was just keep your head down and keep silent. And Alls's point is that I would like to believe in that incremental faith or even the Martin Luther King, but we have, been, we have been made such refugees in this country that doesn't really work for us. And at some point you have to say not only no to the silence, the systems are trying to impose, but the silence, the older generations trying to impose. Mm. That, that was his point in a very fine piece. I recommend it. And, and I think a lot of people, even in different races had that a lot of young white people think, you guys are totally sold us out on climate change X, Y, Z. I'm not doing this silent incremental thing for you because <laughs> I've never in my life seen that work. And, and from their lived experience, that's probably true. Yeah. I, I think the, so, so one pragmatism just isn't sexy. And um, it, there's, when there's, you know, people don't get excited about small agreements. Uh, they get excited about sort of these sweeping packages or the fighting that prevents anything from happening. But the other part is um, the politics of patience, that works unless you are the person with a, a police officer's knee on the back of your neck. There's no time for patience there. And, you know, in 68, which sort of kicked off this, you know, some transformation that happens in the country, there is a summer of rioting in 67. And then again, in April of 68, following Martin Luther King's assassination, that, that uh, precedes that transformation. And so at some point, um, incrementalism, when it doesn't serve particular groups, that group is going to let the nation know that what is happening is no longer acceptable. Uh, prior to Truman's, you know, desegregation orders in 48, uh, even before FDR, you had the, the red summer of 1919, racial uh, riots across the country, police brutality, um, jobs washing up, fair wages weren't being paid. And so you have large amounts of protest and unrest. You have large amounts of organizing, mostly happening not by the men at the front of the movements, but by women doing grassroots mobilization in churches and communities through those institutions that bonded communities together that led to these sweeps of transformation and societal change that we now, uh, that, that the history books remember most. So I, I think um, the... It's in the eras of incrementalism where the nation becomes a little bit better, a little bit more perfect. 
But in the periods between those incremental steps, it's usually very painful, especially for those excluded groups, those marginalized groups. And those groups do not sit quiet and wait their turn. They're not, uh, they're not opportunistic waiting for their, their window. They are forcing the nation to move. They're compelling the policy window to open. Uh, and so the, the incrementalism and the maximalism play off of one another. Uh, and, and that allows the nation to move forward in a system designed to be very resilient and uh, resistant to change. Yeah, I mean, it could be, of course, 20, 30 years from now, we, can, we will look back at these moments and see you know, not the breakdown of a system, but the efflorescence of actual on-the-ground democracy, right? Where everybody believes as a birthright that their voice and their needs should be heard, deserve to be heard, will be heard. And in the moment, that can just seem like a cacophony of competing demands cascading against each other in a really violent way, violent emotionally, violent literally. Um, but, you know, there is a possibility that we're so immersed in this literal explosion of conflict or of, of my voice, my needs, my demands now. We have to fix climate change. We have to fix racial injustice. We have to solve the issues of the past. We have to be, you know, all of the ideals that we have thought we should be and variants of that around the world, right? You know, I'm not going to be poor and bound by a caste system in India or bound by a caste system in America or bound by anything other than whatever it is that I can unleash of my own individualism, which is so contrary to how most societies have ever lived. You know, we've, we've, uh, we, we have a, some more time for Q&A. There's been a lot of stuff in the chat, which I think a lot of, you know, uh, we have been looking at. So David's referenced some, Ted's picked up on some of it. I've, so we've tried to kind of integrate subtly uh, multitasking as we go along uh, some of the stuff in the chat. There's one question that in, in the Q&A about what might unite, you know, what might strengthen the us part. And someone suggested that um, poverty, right, is a something that, that cuts across region. It's it's rural and white. It's urban and African-American. It's uh, South Texas and Hispanic and California and Latinx. It's, you know, Asian and Chinatowns. So, I mean, meaning th there could be a, a degree to which poverty becomes a a kind of a unifying theme um, it clearly was, I guess, briefly in 1965, the rationale for a whole series of expansive social programs. What do you think of? I mean, is that is that feasible or? Yeah, I would say people are united by um, common loves, and in most communities, they love their kids. So, working on education and the status of children is something that tends to unite. They love their place, uh, just making a beautiful town or a beautiful village. Um, they love their work. And it would be very helpful if we did have economic security for people. <laughs> uh, and, and that's something that has to come mostly from Washington, I suppose, whether it's through infrastructure or wage sports or earning tax credit or whatever you want to do. Um, and But I do think, you know, my weavers, the, the people I go around and visit and try to celebrate around the country, their, their main focus is the marginalized. They, they, are, they, they work on the, on the edges of society for those most left out. Uh, and if you would spend the last three years pre-COVID like me traveling around and talking to these people, writing stories, making movies about them, bringing them to audiences, you would be an extremely hopeful person because, <laughs> A, they're incredibly dynamic people. They really are people for, pe for other people. They live lives for others. They have uh, this um, moral charisma. They have a sense of vocational certitude. I know why I'm here. I know who I'm serving. And they have a sense of joyfulness. Uh, and so it could be the revival is happening. It's just, it's in Watts, it's in McCook, Nebraska, it's in Wilkes, North Carolina. Uh, and we're sort of ruining it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, the... The future blossoming of the United States are going is going to result from seeds planted locally, as David said. It's I think this is absolutely a bottom up. It will need to be a bottom up uh, epiphany for the nation. Um, I don't think an issue is going to do it. I don't think it's going to be poverty. I don't think it's going to be economic inequality. I think those things may. Um, cause people to sort of retreat to their community and look for purpose there uh, because of all of the pessimism and, and bad uh, news that they hear nationally. Uh, but um, I, I do think that some things, uh, structural racism, I think, is, is a, there are issues that filter 
to the local in a way that prevents local community from forming because they're exclusive or they, they continue to exacerbate the marginalization that Dave was talking about. But when you, when you are in these communities, you don't see the division that you would expect to see if you live on social media or on cable news. Uh, so um, family, as David said, family is important. Uh, but the, the other thing is finding the new set of institutions. Uh, church attendance is down, Boy Scout memberships, um, you know, Shriners Club, bowling clubs, all these institutions that used to be places where the community would gather and build together are not there anymore. Those institutions from 80 years ago are gone. But what are the new ones? Is it Orange Theory? Is it yoga? Is it a book club, running clubs? What what do the new types of social institutions that are more that are smaller, more transitory, more malleable, flexible, and and maybe even ephemeral? But the existence of these institutions uh, is, I think, a fact of local communities. And so we've just got to find what they are and then leverage their existence in order to build out from them uh, and, and restore the, the potential that is in our communities and in the country writ large. You know, and on that, there was a question in, in the chat about, particularly for rural America, and David, you, you know, you did a lot of traveling around. Um, a lot of these narratives are perforce written by people in cities, you know, both out of, uh, you know, intense social justice or privileged elites, but they do tend to come out of urban areas, a lot of these stories, right? Um, how does how does that part of the United States, which is shrinking, but still prominent president in rural America, really, you know, write that narrative? And when that narrative gets written too much by coastal elites, like the controversy around the film version of Hell, Hillbilly Elegy, it doesn't tend to work so well. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, the funny thing about the Philadelphia allergy, all the critics hated it. It has a Rotten Tomatoes score of 25. The actual people it depicts seem to love it because it has a, a popular audience score of like 86. It's like one of the hmm. most popular. So uh, <laughs> critics don't represent America. Um, <laughs> I, I, you know, I think the election result has shown us how vast the cultural gap is between rural and urban America. And basically what's happening in, in over the last 40 or 50 years uh, young, ambitious people have left rural America for obvious reasons. Uh, you know, you go to a town, Wilkes, North Carolina, a small town about an hour outside of Winston-Salem. They'll tell you our biggest export here is people. Uh, hmm. And they struggle to keep people rooted and they're, and they're looking and they, they don't blame them. There are just no jobs. Uh, Wilkes was the home of NASCAR at one point. It was the home of Holly Field. Uh, it was home of uh, some furniture companies. They're all gone. They all went to Charlotte forever, and they've got a chicken plant there, but it's um, mostly Latinos who work there now. And so there, there's just nothing to keep the young people there. And there's even this finding that, you know, we have these big five personality traits. People who score high on openness to experience move to New York <laughs> and do very well in our society. Uh, and so uh, I think that that's part of the new class structure somehow, the urban, rural, and the geographic concentration of cultural and economic power mm-hmm. is just a gigantic driving force between a lot of these uh, new kinds of disparities. You know, we are, Ted, why don't you get the last word? No, I was just going to very quickly that the, the answer to that is not to tell people to go to 90 day coding camps and go from being a coal miner to working at Google. Um, you cannot, uproot people and force 100% of the nation to 10 metro areas around the country in search of economic security. Uh, We're going to have to find a way to spread out opportunity and prosperity and not cluster it in in, uh, particular areas because attachment to place is a good characteristic um, for Americans to have. And we we shouldn't sort of uh, assimilate everyone to, to, to metro areas in search of economic opportunity. You know, I, I best laid plans with mice and men. I thought we were going to kind of have the funnel go down. We kind of stayed at a, at a, at a big picture level. But I would say both for Ted and David, um, you know, you are both intensely people who who I, I feel practice what you preach, meaning you, you, you try to see the world through the words that you articulate about how the world is. Um, and, and David, you've made an intensive effort to... Um, you know, get out of your own comfort zone to actually find answers, not just in your own mind, but out there. And Ted, you're, you know, not just your language, although I think the use of language is powerful in your work and in, in your presence, um, but also, you know, 
acting as you as you preach. Um, and I think you know, from when I talked about the humility thing, it, it, it is a way to really try to make sure that uh, it, it's really easy to think you're right. Um, it's it's really hard to work with other people who also think they're right and think you're wrong. And and in a in a noisy, genuinely democratic society, that that is the challenge, and that is going to be the task for all of us. And if I could like do one thing with the Progress Network and these voices, it's to say, really just listen, you know, really listen, um, and not just to your self speak. And I think both of you have have absolutely live that and continue to live that. So I, I salute you. I'm really glad to have had the time with both of you tonight and grateful for Emma for organizing all this and for uh, helping us try to create a community uh, in, the, in the Progress Network. Please, all of you who are listening you know, now and in the future, sign up for our newsletter, spread the word. There's a slight evangelical quality to this, which I don't mind owning. And uh, uh, you know, contact me, contact Emma, contact these guys, and uh, I hope you all have a great solstice, uh, a, a decent, restful, peaceful end to an incredibly unrestful, unpeaceful, unpleasant year. And uh, let's let's look to the future and see that we can create a better one. So thank you. To find out more information about the Progress Network and what could go right, visit theprogressnetwork.org. You can also sign up for our weekly newsletter to stay up to date with everything happening with the Progress Network. If you like the show, please tell a friend, share an episode, or leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you're listening to this podcast. What Could Go Right is hosted by Zachary Carabell and me, Emma Varvalukas. We're produced by Andrew Steven. Jordan Aaron is our production coordinator, executive produced by Jeff Ombro and the Podglomerate. Thanks so much for listening.